This is an ABC podcast. Hey, welcome to Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell, and this is Science Interrupted, and uh, possibly radio interrupted because I have a puppy snoring very audibly and loudly at my feet right now. Working from home, folks. It's tremendously difficult to think of not of not finishing the work. It's tremendously difficult. Working with cane toads is always a race against time. Because you want more information, but the majority of the information are actually, oh my God, really? This pandemic has swept in like a tsunami, hasn't it? And caught us all by complete surprise. We're in a collective state of shock, really. And for many scientists, so much is at stake. Years of experiments, fieldwork, results, clinical trials, patients, students, the lives of lab animals. The consequences for so many are deeply personal and in some cases could affect the lives of thousands of others and other species too. So today on the show, three scientists with three glimpses. How are you? How are you going? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, baby was a bit of a nightmare this morning, but it's been, I had this Zoom call with a bunch of other people from Perth and uh, she was basically sitting in my lap. <laughs> All the time. He's a roller coaster. Dr. Paula Magni won the FameLab Australia competition last year, and she's a senior lecturer in forensic science at Murdoch University in Perth. And my husband is a frontline pharmacist in Perth, so possibly meeting people affected by COVID-19 every single day. But right now, Paula is in Singapore, where she also works as deputy dean of Murdoch University's campus there. Her baby daughter is with her and she and her husband don't know when they'll be able to be reunited. He was going to be concerned. We we're going to be concerned as well. But uh, this is probably the best option for the moment. We hope that this is going to be only for a while. But for the moment, it is what it is. And he might not see his daughter for very many, many months. Yeah, so far, yeah, they can see each other only by, by video call. That is a huge gift. Imagine this happening 10 years ago or, or more. I don't know if it could be bearable 10 years ago. But the situation is changing so much, isn't it? It's still very unclear what's going to happen with international flights around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, impossible to make any predictions at the moment. Also because uh, uh, Australia is getting way better, especially Western Australia, because it's very much far away from every everybody else. Uh, Singapore is experiencing a second important peak of, of cases compared to other countries. We are living this situation pretty, pretty well. Uh, Singapore learned a lot from the SARS situation and we didn't have many cases at all until a few weeks ago when the borders were going to be closed and many people from all over the world wanted to come back to Singapore and they came back already sick. You're Italian and the scenes coming out of Italy have been very, very distressing during this pandemic right from early on. What has that meant for, for you and your family in Italy? I speak with them every day and I, I make sure that they have everything they need. I managed to... The, to do online shopping for them from Singapore 
to have for them at home. <sighs> my grandmother, she turned 97 mm. last week. Wow. And she is safe and sound in a hedge care facility. But this is the first time in her life in which she doesn't see my mom or my auntie for more than two days in a row. And the hedge care facilities have been locked down. So, yeah, it's an interesting learning curve for, for the family. And uh, there's also a big exercise of, of, of trust for, uh, towards the, uh, the, the facilities. Singapore has now gone into a lockdown and Polar and colleagues are having to move really fast to put their university courses online. She's also supporting PhD students around the world with their projects now in flux and major grant application processes have been put on pause too. Then there's her own research. Your work as a forensic scientist, I mean, you've been an expert on many crime scene investigations in Italy. You're now doing forensic science research here in Australia. And you shared this curious photo with me of what you describe as your babies back in the lab <laughs> in Perth, in Western Australia, and it had me totally intrigued. What is it a photo of? <laughs> so my babies in the photos are baby barnacles. <laughs> right. I know that not many people will say barnacles as babies, but... Um, in my research, I use barnacles for criminal investigation when a, a body is found in a in aquatic environment in the ocean. So, because um, barnacles are annoying, they attach on anything that is floating or that is uh, underwater, and they stuck on that. We can identify what they are. So, where does the body come from? From how long the body is in water, and uh, also the journey. They took the body from the primary crime scene where it was dumped in the ocean to the place where the body was found. So they can be very interesting, but there is no research about that. To do this kind of research, we need to have uh, active colonies of barnacles in, in the lab. So we keep having them in, in aquaria, but they, they eat small microscopic algae. So we had to grow the algae as well. You cannot go to the supermarket and buy baby algae. And beside that, I work in forensic entomology as well. That is the study of insects. And we have colonies of flies. And as well, it's very difficult to keep up with, uh, with the colonies at the moment when, uh, when the laboratories have been shut because of the, um, of the issue that is going on. It's incredible work. So you've got these baby barnacles back in the lab in Perth. And uh, w will they die? Because the, I guess barnacles, <laughs> barnacles are one concern, but there are uh, labs all over the world with experimental animals of all shapes, sizes and varieties and species from rats to mice and onwards, barnacles too, that are possibly going to be compromised or culled because of this global shutdown. I would say maybe the research will be compromised. The life of the of the animals probably not, because uh, all the university uh, have the ethical necessity of looking after all the animals that they have. So all the university have in place um, measures to look after all the animals in the different labs. I was a bit dramatic because I miss my babies, I guess. When I think about my barnacles, sometimes you feel like, what is the utility of my job in the big scheme, in the big picture of things? 
um, really for researchers like me, probably is a, is a big wake-up call about the, the importance of your research. But at, at the same time, the, the world is, is big and many other things are important on a different scale. So I, I remember the first case that I had with Barnicles and I had the mother of this guy that was found uh, on, this, on this show that was crying on this loss. And I was the only person who could give her information that could give her peace, bring justice to this family, bring closure to this victim. So is, this is another victim. He's not a COVID-19 victim, but my research is helping just one family. Yes, absolutely. Meaning, so. <laughs> there's, there's meaning in it everywhere you look, not just in the pandemic. I mean, some scientists yeah. will have pivoted their work really fast to working on COVID-19 science, but not all scientists are going to do that. But that doesn't mean their work is any less meaningful. Yeah. But it's tricky, isn't it? I think everyone's feeling yeah. that kind of existential ang- angst. Yeah. How can I be useful? Nothing and, and is the same anymore. Yeah, and you can't help yourself sometimes of reading articles or watching some videos of how amazing with these doctors and nurses and healthcare uh, people are working in this period. You can't help to feeling like I'm not useful at all. I should be there, even just volunteering for this. To, and then you say, you know what? My neighbor is an old person. I cooked something. I knocked to the door and I, and I provided them for la- some lunch. So we, we can help. We can be kind and we can keep doing whatever we are doing. So you don't have to be a doctor to be a hero. You can be just a good neighbor knocking to the door, are you okay? Would you like some lunch? We have to take this time of lockdown as a unique opportunity. It's a great opportunity to introspect what we want to make for the future in research, as personal, as family, as a community. So it's not all bad. I think it's the kind of situation which the first week is like, oh my God, I feel anxious. I, I'm drowning in this loneliness and I want to see people. But then you start realizing, hold on, I have lots of time now. What I can do with my time and what I can make things better. It's a an extraordinary time to be alive. I just, I think we all should just feel a fortunate in some way to be alive when others are losing their lives. So um, we had to be kind and look after each other from different point of view. I hope your barnacles survive. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Paola, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Natasha. Lovely to speak with you. And I hope it's a wonderful reunification when you get to see your husband again in Perth. I will send you the picture better than the barnacles. <laughs> Bye-bye. Forensic scientist Paula Magni from Murdoch University, Skyping from Singapore. And on Science Friction, we are talking science interrupted in this time of pandemic. Week to week, Dr. Mark Polizotto is a haematologist at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, tending to people who live with HIV and cancer, amongst other conditions. Yeah, I look after a really wonderful group of patients. I feel tremendously privileged to, to look after the people I do and to see a little bit of their lives at a time when they need help. Mark's patients are already highly immunocompromised. So if COVID-19 was to hit them, they could be in serious trouble. I think 
all of my colleagues uh, at my hospital are tremendously focused on bringing all of our patients through this. You know, we, we recognise that people with cancer seem to be particularly vulnerable. Their immune systems are, are damaged by the cancer and by our treatments. And so we're, we're spending an enormous amount of time to try and protect them. And I hope that we bring them all through to the other side. But it's, it's a very big thing that's unfolding and it's going to be a while before I think we all really understand what's happened. Mark has a global focus too through his research with the Kirby Institute for Infection and Immunity at the University of New South Wales. He's involved in running this major international clinical trial right now to test simpler, cheaper HIV drugs. And so that trial's been underway now for about three years uh, and it's, it's a tremendously important piece of work for us because we... We know that of the 35 million people with HIV in the world, about 10% of them are going to need a second-line therapy every year. So it's a, it's a real problem and a very, a very urgent problem for those individuals. It's very common when I travel to visit our clinical collaborators in countries around the world to hear stories of patients, to meet patients who are clearly not responding to their first-line treatment where they have nothing better to offer them. With their healthcare givers knowing it's not working, they're knowing it's not working and they can't access an effective treatment because it's too expensive or it's too complicated or the people looking after them with the best of intentions just don't know how to do it uh, because, again, the shortage of doctors and so on is, is so significant. So this trial could change millions of people's lives. Particularly in some of the most vulnerable countries in the world. And so one of the things that was tremendously important to me and, and my colleagues as we developed this trial was to be studying these medicines in the places where, where the knowledge would be most useful if the trial was successful. And so we've done that in West Africa, in Mali and Guinea, which are you know, very, very complicated countries to do this sort of work uh, in Indonesia uh, and across Latin America and other parts of Africa. How many participants are involved in your trial? <laughs> At the moment, uh, we have about 600 of a planned 1,000. And so the expectation was that we would probably finish that trial over the course of 2020. We follow people for a period of time to, of course, to see whether the, the trial medications are working. So we would have expected results towards the end of 2021. So as we became aware in the last couple of months, the last number of weeks that a, pan <laughs> yes. a, a pandemic was unfolding. And day by day. Day yeah. by day. What did that mean for you as you started to realise that this was something very, very big? On, on this trial and on other trials, we've dealt with, at the level, the individual country level, we've dealt with really significant unrest. You know, some of our countries have been through civil unrest, they've been through real periods of political upheaval and we've always made it through those things. We've never seen anything of this scale or this speed and of course nobody alive has. And so it took us a few days to work out that this was happening. But one thing that a trial like this depends on is the ability to fly medicines into our central distribution facility, to fly them from there into whichever country it might be, to restock on an almost, not, not quite just in time basis, but to be restocking regularly. And that's critical for us because when we bring someone onto a study, 
we take incredibly seriously the responsibility of supporting them with the medicines um, that we provide through the trial. Uh, so we would support someone for three years if they came onto our trial, that we need to, to protect those people and support those people with, with these medicines. Often, often in very difficult circumstances and Co- often in correct. very constrained yep. healthcare systems. Exactly. And so we've, and we've been used to working with that. What we've really done in the last few weeks is, first of all, have to completely rethink how we supply drug to participants, uh, both to protect them and to protect our healthcare workers. First of all, how can we get as much of these medicines as possible into their countries now? For various reasons, we don't normally bring large amounts into, into a country in part. Uh, yeah, for a number of reasons. But we had to ask ourselves, how do we get more medicine into these countries? How do we do it very, very quickly? So the issue was that countries in your cohort of participants were gradually being shut down, locked down, international exactly. flights were being exactly. halted. Exactly. And our ability to rely in part on the normal infrastructure of medical drug supply in those countries also became questionable. So we... we redesigned that supply chain so that we were also bringing in, as well as this emergency supply of the specific trial medicines, we were also bringing in supplies of these supported medicines. So how do you do that when you have no international flights? <laughs> it's been very difficult. We managed, we've managed along the way to re- realign the way supplies get in. So we've managed to identify places where flights are still going in and then identify places where there's either local local flights are still continuing or there's there's land transport to, to get medicines over. Um, but we've really had to invent from scratch a new way of doing that. And normally it would take us months to plan a production run of supply drugs. You know, we work with a number of pharmaceutical companies to do that. They have to plan a specific run and, and then we have to receive the medicines, label it in the way that we need them labelled and get them out the door. So we've had to do all that in a matter of weeks. Similarly, it's normally the case that we bring people in relatively regularly to pick up their medicines. And unlike in Australia, where you can go to a corner chemist now and get your HIV medicines, in general, our patients would come into the hospital to get their medicines in these countries. And so again, rather than having them coming in as often as once a month to get their medicines, we're trying now to give them, say, six months of medicine so they don't have to come in as often. Anything we can do to keep them at home, basically, keep them away from healthcare facilities without compromising their safety, anything we can do along those lines, we've done. Mark, are you anxious that this trial, uh, in its entirety, though, might be entirely um, compromised if a pandemic hits the countries that you're working with? There's no question that our ability to complete the trial as we planned is is uncertain and it, I think it will be uncertain for many months. So that means we've paused the trial with about two-thirds of the people we would like. Um, for the people we have on the trial, we're doing the minimum number of visits. I think we'll still we'll still learn a lot from those people's participation, but we're not going to learn as much as we would have otherwise. So given you can't recruit the full thousand participants that you wanted to because of this pandemic, does that mean then the data will be uh, powerful enough, uh, useful enough to you from a statistical point of view? If we can't get to the thousand, then we won't be able to answer the question that we started out with. 600 people isn't isn't going to be enough to answer that question to the to the sort of standards of rigor that we would need. 
whether we can complete that work, I think, is is a question that that we won't know the answer to for, for quite some time. It's tremendously difficult to think of not finishing the work. It's tremendously difficult because we've all on the team met or heard about uh, patients who really need this answer and who really need these treatments. So it's it's tremendously hard. That's a very real fear for us. There's no question that even in the best of times, maintaining trial infrastructure in some of these countries is is very challenging. So I'm under no illusions that that was fragile at the best of times, and and we're all very concerned that this that this may set back that process by by many years, and that this particular trial may not may not be able to to go to a conclusion. It's heartbreaking and frightening all at once. And and I think as well as that longer term distress there's there's a really immediate concern for us about our colleagues who who are healthcare givers in these countries who are now having to work in you know tremendously difficult circumstances often often without the the protective equipment you would like we know they are fearing for their patients um, as this unfolds and those things have really preoccupied us a great deal we certainly hold hold tremendous fears for all of our colleagues it's a hard one hey sorry mm. um yes yeah, so so we we we're tremendously aware of the risks to our colleagues um just as they're aware of the risks to their patients uh because you're dealing with you're dealing with patients who are immunocompromised already, exactly. living with exactly. HIV, and we need to remind yep. people that one in five, uh, nearly one in five people in South Africa, for example, live with HIV. It's yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. Many have TB as well. Yeah, it's incredible, and clearly they're not able to isolate in you know households of two or three or four people the way we do in Australia. They're not able to come to clinic necessarily in their own car. They're on on crowded buses. They're often not able to support themselves unless they work. It's a completely different world. And earlier earlier in the month, we started to try and secure for our colleagues additional protective equipment, additional additional things that would help them beyond what they had available. And of course, everyone in the world wants this right now, but we, we did try. But as we were going through asking them what they had available in their hospitals at this point, some of them were coming back with, you know, no gloves, no masks, no soap. And this was really before before COVID had really begun to hit. So it's very hard to imagine how that will how that will unfold. But Mark and colleagues are now planning to monitor and support the HIV-positive patients in their African trials who also happen to get COVID-19 to really try to better understand the disease in this vulnerable group and what impact HIV medications might have too. So this is really important work. As we know, relatively little clinical research is done in, in resource-limited settings. And so I think it's a tremendously important thing to try and use this infrastructure that we've we've developed and our colleagues have developed in Africa to try and understand this new threat. Mark, my heart goes out to you right now. <laughs> I can hear this is very, very real and raw uh, and you're dealing with the global story of this pandemic as much as the local. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
No, thank, thank you for the opportunity to talk through this, Natasha. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure to be on. Dr. Mark Polizotto from the Kirby Institute and St. Vincent's Hospital. I'm not back at home. I got caught out by the border closures. I'm on the wrong side of the southern moat at the moment. This is ecologist Dr George Ward fear and as scientists chase down COVID-19, she was meant to be chasing down another wild frontier in the top end of Australia right now. She lives in Hobart with her husband, is currently in Queensland at her mother's and is a postdoc researcher in Sydney at Macquarie University. She is the founder of the Cane Toad Coalition. So in Northern Australia, cane toads are still invading and they're moving westwards at about 50 kilometres a year. And as they do, cane toads kill off any native animal who dares to eat and imbibe their toxic toady juices. Goannas, quolls, snakes, freshwater crocodiles. They're decimated. They're no longer there. So you can you can go out in the morning along walking along rivers and see you know, 10, 50, even 100 goannas if you spend enough time out. And then once the canters have moved through, they're just not in the environment anymore. So many populations have gone extinct uh, from cane toads. And the impact is very sharp and severe. The cane toads arrive and then within a few months, the majority of the population is decimated and gone. And the invasion frontline is made up of these really large, very toxic, kind of athletic super toads, if you like. They have evolved over the time they've been in Australia to be moving to have longer legs so that they can disperse longer distances every year. They're so toxic, goannas only have to mouth this toad for, say, 10 seconds and they die. So that's really bad news for the goannas. It's also bad news for the the top-end communities, isn't it? How vital are some of these so-called apex predators, these larger native animals, to communities in the Kimberley? Having worked up in the top end for so long, it's it's actually it's a huge impact, uh, and that is on the indigenous communities of northern Australia. So these species are really important in their culture. Uh, they're totemic species. They're, so there's lots of songs and knowledge and language and and skills, hunting skills and things associated with them. Many of these uh, communities still actively hunt these animals, and before in pre-toad densities, that's totally sustainable. And so when these animals are gone, just vanished from the landscape almost overnight, suddenly all of that knowledge, it's, well, it's still maintained as best it can be, but the context is lost in some ways. Georgia has been testing a really novel strategy from her PhD work for controlling these feral toads, which, by the way, were first introduced into Australia in 1935 from Hawaii to try and control pest beetles in sugarcane. And more recently, we've been working with the native wildlife themselves to buffer the impact of cane toads. And we've been using this, this kind of this novel uh, strategy called taste aversion. And taste aversion is essentially a food poisoning response um, that we elicit in the animals. So we go into areas before the cane toads have arrived, but they're just about to arrive. And we give animals small cane toads. And those small cane toads make the animals sick, but they don't kill them because they're too small to be fatal. And the, the predators, uh, native predators, learn not to eat cane toads because they get sick, but they don't die. And so when the big cane toads come into an area, they remember that experience and they don't eat the large cane toads. So that's the strategy that we've been working with. We know that it works with all of the predators that are heavily impacted. And we have come together as a group of organisations to actually deliver that strategy on a landscape scale across uh, the Kimberley region. 
interesting because it's a little bit like how we might treat developing a vaccine for a viral pandemic like COVID-19 in a way, isn't it? I mean, you're using baby cane toads to kind of inoculate native animals against eating the kind of more toxic adult cane toads. That's exactly right, Natasha. That's, that is the premise of the strategy. Uh, it is considered an ecological immunisation. Okay, so you've shown it works. Where were you at with deploying this strategy in the top end in the Kimberley region? The cane toad frontline runs from the coast of the Kimberley right down to kind of Fitzroy Crossing down in the south area. And toads basically stop their invasion where they get to any place that's too arid. So they're kind of moved around the desert regions, but they're moving westwards. So we are doing deployments of teach toads. We call it we call them teacher toads uh, right across the front line from the north to the south, which is a very different environment. And where we're at is we are waiting to get back into these places to assess how these populations have gone now that the cane toads have moved through them this wet season. One of the more important aspects of the study is that we need to know fairly accurately where the cane toad frontline actually is. And we monitor it each year strategically at certain times of year to see how far it's gone. And that directs our strategy for the whole next year. So based on where the cane toads have gotten to now, we will then plan our deployments for next year. And the fact that we're not able to go in and survey and find out exactly where the cane toads have gotten to potentially puts quite a big spanner in the works for our planning for the rest of the year. So then arrived the COVID-19 pandemic. Tell me about (laughs) what a spanner that has thrown into this whole project. You know, ecologists are used to dealing with variation and uh, fluctuating variables. Uh, we have to work with weather and, and you know, most recently fire, but we're not used to working with viruses, you know, to having to kind of move things around viruses. So, we were geared up to be heading up to the Kimberley. We would be there right now. Our monitoring schedule was planned out. We'd organised with the different Indigenous ranger groups that we collaborate with, the work schedule, the assessing the populations to see how they've fared after this wet season, and then the locating the toad front as the wet season is winding down now. And then COVID hit and suddenly all travel was restricted. We couldn't get up there. And most recently, the Kimberley in itself has gone into lockdown because the Kimberley is home to uh, an amazing array of different Indigenous cultural groups, uh, many of which we collaborate with and, and all of which um, are kind of partners on this program and that we're, uh, that we're rolling out together. And they're also very vulnerable to COVID-19. If the virus gets into those communities, you know, many of them are remote and they have people at risk health-wise and, you know, they've got a lot of elders in community and they also have very little medical facilities. So if you entered the communities, even if you could get there, you'd present an infection risk to your colleagues in those communities? Definitely, definitely. It was. It's not worth the risk. First and foremost, uh, this is a you know this is a health issue. But fundamentally, chasing this cane toad frontline is a race against time for you. I mean, this is a really important project. This is your postdoctoral research project. It is a race against time, isn't it? Yes, it is. Working with cane toads is always a race against time. It's something that you have to get used to to kind of desensitise yourself in a way so that you can work under the pressure of the impending invasion. You have to keep your head on in these circumstances, working with the cane toad invasion. But 
The issue that we're experiencing now is that as the Cane Tony invasion continues to move through areas almost left unchecked because there's there's no movement within the Kimberley uh, and no movement between states. So we don't know how long it will be until we can get up there. I am concerned about how far the cane toads are going to get. The taste diversion methodology only works at the very front of the cane toad invasion area. You need to get into, into there just before the toads arrive. And so we can't risk going too far ahead of the invasion and, and doing this these deployments because it'll be too long between when the animals have that experience and when they meet the cane toad invasion. Uh, but we also can't risk going into areas and investing a lot of time and resources into doing deployments in areas where the cane toads have already gone through that we might not be able to detect when we are able to go back in because cane toads kind of close down for the dry season. Like a lot of the animals in northern Australia, they kind of shut down for the dry season and then they come up, come out again uh, at the beginning of the wet season. So we really need to be able to get in there and find cane toads whilst they're still active. Otherwise, we'll in some ways having to start from square one again next wet season. I have been feeling concerned for my Indigenous colleagues uh, in the Kimberley and for the animals. You know, it's all very well to have papers and, and things like that and, and have data. and But ultimately, all scientists, we're not doing it for money. You know, we're not doing it for the, those accolades. Well, I'm certainly not. So for me, it's about um, protecting wildlife. It's about influencing conservation. So that's where my mind is at, is thinking about what could potentially happen to the animals if we can't intervene. The stress of living with as the cane toad invasion moves through areas, especially if you know that you do have a successful strategy that, that can stop some of that devastation from occurring. But really, I'm not catastrophizing about it yet. It's not over yet, and uh, we will do what, the best we can. Yeah, ever the scientific pra pragmatist. <laughs> Scientists are always <laughs> pragmatists. Um, yeah. but, I mean, in a sense, this virus, SARS-CoV-2, that's causing the COVID-19 pandemic, is a force of ecology. It's a force of nature. It is, and I think this, in the, in the same way that... Cane toads are so interesting. You know, for someone that's worked with cane toads for a long time, people think that you must hate them, but actually they're absolutely fascinating. And what they've been able to do all around the world and in Australia, the evolution that we've seen in the, in the span of a human lifetime that cane toads have undergone to adapt, it's actually a thing of beauty. It's actually gobsmacking what some of these other living things can achieve. Uh, and I think it's similar to the virus. I mean, we're actually competing right now with another species. But anytime you're working with a virus, you know, that's another living thing that's doing its thing and um, and you're actually competing with it. So it is interesting to take stock of those kind of things. It's just like a cane toad in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> Strange. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not alone in in, the, in having my fieldwork and my research um, disrupted as as in as a biologist or ecologist. Last year, the fires ripped through uh, many of my colleagues' field sites, and they had nothing, you know, and that they've got they had nothing left. At least I know that my animals uh, will be there, and that my study system will will be there. So that's some comfort. There are some silver linings to this that. I have heard people talk about, uh, and that is that nature in some ways is rebounding. You know, as we have quietened down and stopped moving and stopped travelling, 
nature is kind of reclaiming some of its its spaces. You know, over Wuhan, the skies are the sky. I've I've read that the skies are blue now, and you know, through Venice, that there's now the the canals are clear and there's dolphins and there's you know um, schools of fish in the canals and it's there's something quite glorious about the fact that nature is getting a breather from us uh, and and that's kind of part of the perspective I think. For you you've also been encouraged by the way in which the global community can rally together when they need to. That is so heartening you know for scientists to see that uh, when something happens on a big scale on a global scale when 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 there's the, the, the globe is telling us something that we can all uh, that we can kind of get, it galvanise us. Uh, it galvanises us and we're able to to shift tracks and governments are able to uh, shift tracks really quickly. That is really heartening uh, and, and um, gives me hope for the future. I mean, hopefully it doesn't get to the point where we need something so intense to happen with climate change that we have to adapt this quickly. But it's also heartening that the governments are really paying attention to scientists you know they're really they're really valuing uh, the scientific community at the moment and hopefully that uh, continues on after this Thanks to Drs Georgia Ward Fear, Paula Magni and Mark Polizotto, all talking to me this week via Skype. And thank you also to co-producer Jane Lee and studio engineer Brendan O'Neill. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Share the podcast around. Next week, what is a keen young astrophysicist and reality TV star? doing at the COVID-19 frontline. It's a great story and vital work. Until then, you take good care, hey? You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.